Be free with your tempo. Be free. Be free. Surrender your ego. Be free. Be free to yourself. Hi, I'm Winston. You know, for someone who's been wondering about his mental well-being for the longest time, I haven't talked to many mental health professionals. I saw one a couple of times when I was 18. That's probably when my anxiety levels were at their highest. But I didn't follow up for whatever reason. I think I sort of just steeled myself to power through the challenges I was facing at the time. Then I regularly saw a life-slash-career coach for a few months a couple of years ago. It was good talking to her, but I think we didn't have much chemistry. Plus, I think I have this problem where I keep alternating between needing a therapist and a coach. Suffice to say, I've yet to find the right person or persons to talk to or even the right frequency. How do I tell when I need professional help? or when I just need to take some time off to myself? And how much of this dilly-dallying is the result of growing up in a world which just didn't really talk about mental health? Do I need to just let go of that ego, that fear, and just be true to my innermost feelings? These were some of the questions I had in mind as I sought out mental health professionals to talk to for this series. As luck would have it, I found two to talk to. Welcome back to Vibe Check, Mental Health in the Startup World, a technical podcast where I talk to startup leaders and mental health experts to see what I can learn from them when it comes to managing my mental well-being. And in this episode, our series finale, I speak to psychiatrist Dr. Ken Ng and clinical psychologist Dr. Oliver Swinderman. Uh, can each of you please uh, introduce yourself and what you do? Uh, Dr. Ken, we can start with you. Right, yeah. I'm, my name is Dr. Ken Ang. I'm a psychiatrist. So I suppose some people sometimes confuse a psychiatrist with a psychologist. <laughs> so a psychiatrist is basically a medical doctor <laughs> who specializes in a field, uh, psychiatry is to do with uh, conditions afflicting the mind. Yeah. Uh, so it's a medical specialty and I've been practicing psychiatry for about 34 years. Mm. Okay. Dr. Oliver? Thank you very much. Um, it's, a, it's a privilege to be here. Thank you for, for having us over. So my name is Dr. Oliver Sunderman. I'm a clinical psychologist. Uh, my background is both clinical and academic as well. So I have uh, just over 10 years of experience working with patients. Um, and uh, I've also worked the last six years before joining Intellect, um, as a, as a faculty member mm -hmm. in the National University of Singapore on the clinical psychology program. Okay. And at Intellect, I'm the clinical director. Breaking the fourth wall a little bit here, I included their full self-introductions because I want everyone listening to understand their credentials. It's a point of emphasis that they bring up later when I ask about finding the right person to talk to. But first, how have they seen the landscape change over the decades? I mean, if we were to compare when I first uh, came back to Singapore, that would be what, maybe the 90s, you know, okay. early 90s. Uh, and at that time, yeah, I think uh, uh, there's a lot of stigma about uh, mental illness, uh, not really that much 
uh, awareness? So I think generally, uh, the last five, 10 years, we've seen a trend towards more awareness about mm. mental health. So there's been more discussions, more talks, more campaigns um, about the topic, which is super, super important uh, and, and very good to see. And of course, the pandemic has supercharged um, in the last two to three years, our awareness about um, struggles people have, um, you know, with all the safety restrictions uh, and also the work from home, the blurred boundaries between work and personal life. And people are now being more aware of mental health. They're also asking for, you know, um, benefits and access to help and, and so forth. Mm. And so those, those efforts over time have chipped away at the stigma. Of course, there's still a long way to go to do a lot more. As um, we progress, then a lot of these uh, illnesses change. We become more uh, really afflicted by uh, conditions which actually are stress-related or lifestyle-related. Mm. And also that gives us a little bit more luxury to focus on, I guess, uh, illnesses and conditions of the mind. I mean, in the past, I suppose, if you're struggling just to survive, just to keep alive, you know, mm. uh, keep all these painkillers uh, at bay, tuberculosis, infections, then, you know, I suppose uh, mental conditions are a luxury. I found this to be an interesting point that's been lost in the conversations around stigma and lack of awareness. Sometimes we don't talk about certain things simply because there are more immediate issues to focus our energies on. It's not always some kind of insidious reason keeping it quiet. It's become more and more clear how uh, disabling uh, mental conditions are. So for example, uh, take depression for example, you know, uh, so depression is rated by the WHO mm. as the most disabling illness in the world, not, not, not cancer, not heart disease. Mm. Anxiety, number six. With the stage set, I asked about the evolving expectations of employees that's been mentioned in previous episodes. It seems that, quote-unquote, power to the people is the driving force for change in the tech and startup world. With tech and startup companies, you know, you're really looking at uh, younger crowds, you know, uh, and um, people who are really very much more familiar, you know, with uh, uh, mental illness, mental conditions, you know. And also much more open, you know, I think to uh, reach out for help and to receive help. It's, it's a need to have for to a have. company to be proactive about thinking about how they support their staff, mm. not just proactively, but also what, you know, what help do they have for someone who's, who struggles? And, you know, do they, do they support therapy, for example? And do they give access? The workers are asking for this. Um, it's, that's why I was saying earlier, it's not really a choice for a company. Uh, Gen Z, they value they value uh, work boundaries a lot more. They uh, salary is important, no question, but questions we get in our company as well as you know what benefits do we have for um, physical and mental health as well. The doctors agree that it makes a lot of sense for this movement to be particularly strong in the tech and startup scene, since it's notorious for its hustle culture and emphasis on efficiency and performance. Tech companies, startups, you know, there's a lot perhaps more pressure in a sense, you know, like um, uh, they're often fast paced, mm. you know, they're obviously trying to get ahead. You know, there's a lot of, uh, I suppose, competitors nipping at the heels rather than <laughs> a old established company. You know, you can really kind of rest on your laurels, I suppose. The work processes change over time, right? When you're very small, you have a team of three, four, five staff, you know, you have to pull up your sleeves and, um, you know, even if you're the founder, you have to, you know, write emails yourself, uh, do admin related work and so forth. But as you scale, 
uh, you need to let go and be able to delegate as well. And depending on how good you are at that, um, you know, you experience more or less stress as well. Um, and then, of course, you have the investors uh, breathing down your neck as well. who want to th see a return on their money. The imposter syndrome as well, the mm. idea that um, you may not be as good as people think you are, or that you think, um, you know, you've just been lucky so far getting to where you are and then, you know, struggling with those more unhelpful beliefs, you know, around um, what you can and cannot do. Their blind spot is that they... Uh, think that uh, they shouldn't be having a good time. It's a waste of time. <laughs> it's a waste of time. You know, they should be doing something always productive. Right. That means, mm. you know, if they just take a step back and do something where there's really no big goal to it, mm. you know, just chill, you know, maybe to smell the flowers. To them, it's like a not on, you know, it's a no-no. It's a waste of time. Yeah. People are almost mm. uh, thinking that, uh, you know, doing things that have no clear goal you know is not worth doing which is not true a lot of people in that scene have very high unrelentingly high perfectionistic standards and so if they have a strong belief that they need to meet those standards and at all cost and they value meeting those over their own health then that's very very unhelpful there has to be a behavioral change where you actually schedule some um, me time some some self-care time and experience that you're okay doing that because it's quite abstract right you might you might be able to to understand that it's okay to do that but you deny yourself that because we have double standards right we might be okay for our colleagues to do that but for ourselves it's it's it's, it's a much much bigger challenge if you have unhelpful beliefs about what you should or shouldn't be doing then you're more you're less likely to seek help for yourself and admit that you should actually slow down and invest in your own mental and physical health As you might expect, these issues are exacerbated when talking about founders and entrepreneurs. By the very definition of their occupation, these are usually highly driven individuals who are not only expected to be technically proficient, but also a source of leadership and inspiration. Alas, they are but human beings. Well, in the course of like putting together this series, right? Uh, obviously, I, as I mentioned, I've already spoken to a couple of founders that on on record, uh, but I've also like talked uh, like pre-interviews or just like reaching out uh, to hear from different founders on like what they you know the kinds of mental health challenges they face or the, the kind of stresses that they face as a founder as an entrepreneur. Uh, something that a lot of them bring up is that they, uh, besides needing to look for to seek therapy, the only other person that they can kind of more or less confide in is fellow founders because only they know. Um, the kind of like stress that they're going through. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, it's lonely at the top. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, it is uh, difficult sometimes at the top, you know, and you know, sometimes uh, you may not even be aware. You may think that, you know, some of the things that you're going through is stress. I, I just had lunch with one of my colleagues, you know, who is, uh, well, both a psychologist as well as, you know, he's a, uh, you know, high-end uh, kind of management coach, you know, uh, a coach. And he says that, you know, a lot of times, you know, in coaching, really kind of like CEOs and high-end people, um, they're actually, you know, he picks up, you know, they're actually having anxiety, they're depressed, and that's where his clinical skills really come in and, and you know, and they probably weren't so aware. They probably thought, well, it comes with a job. It comes with the territory, you know, they're really stressed, but yeah, they're meant to be yeah, stressed. Yeah, the ones who people turn to for answers. And now, you know, maybe they have questions within about themselves they can't answer and that's a little bit concerning or that's why they, they, they don't really realize that they're going through something. 
I agree. I think so. I think that you know, sometimes as a leader, you know, sort of it's difficult. You you maybe to accept that you have a lot of vulnerabilities. And that's exactly why um, we think coaching is so important as well. That you have someone who, or or a mentor, maybe from from another company, or someone who can guide you, someone you can confide in, uh, having a supportive relationship with someone. Which interestingly doesn't actually need to be someone who's above you in the hierarchy. Um, I've, I've heard of schemes where actually a mentor can be from a lower rank, so that the very senior leader from the C-suite might get uh, some insight into how things are done on the ground. But I have observed that young founders or leaders, in particular, as we said earlier, have better awareness about mental health struggles and so forth. So I think they're perhaps more likely also to be vulnerable and understand that being vulnerable is a strength. And that they don't have to clam up and you know at all costs um, power through. Um, that's not to say that everybody would do that, but um, I would think there's more awareness and more bravery and courage as well um, amongst younger founders to to share about their journeys. I also took this opportunity to take a little detour and ask about a pattern that I'd noticed in undertaking this journey with VibeCheck. Uh, something I've noticed in the course of like putting this whole project together, right? Like I've I've talked to many different founders, uh, but I've noticed that more women are a little bit more willing to share than men. Um, do you think that that's that there's a, there's some like masculinity toxic masculinity whatever you know, some kind of issue there that pre preventing more men to come forward and like be more honest and more vulnerable? Oh, absolutely, this? yeah. It's it's what we see in uh, practice as well. You mm -hmm. know, usually there's a lot more female uh, patients, and maybe they feel they have to be macho. You know, if they talk about this, it, it could be seen as a weakness. You know, so the mm -hmm. men have to be maybe like John Wayne. You know, so they're <laughs> always strong. You know, you can't show any weakness. Um, but it's also a gender thing. I think, yeah. you know, men tend to, I think, maybe be less in touch, I guess, with your feelings. Study after study have shown that women generally are more um, willing, more prone to yeah. seek help. So I was dropping off my, my, my child in school uh, as a two-year-old. And there was another kid, probably maybe three years old, a boy. And, and he was crying. And my mommy said, stop crying immediately and be a good boy. And then the boy stopped crying. <laughs> and so I think it probably starts early on that, you know, boys, many boys learn, um, you know, it's not okay to be emotional. And so that's why then later in life, the sadness and difficult emotions that come out in other ways, aggression perhaps, or um, it's, you know, in quotation marks, it's more okay for, for men to show anger. It's more masculine emotion, but actually the underlying emotion, they may actually be quite sad, but they don't know how to deal with it. All uh, habits, you know, all ideas sometimes die hard. Um, mm. uh, yeah, but, but definitely, you know, it's improved, you know, over the, I guess, decades, over the years. Men, men seem to be a little bit more open, you know, to maybe be more vulnerable, mm. you know. Well, I think it's changing. Um, at, at least, you know, the younger generations, Gen Z, we said earlier, they're probably on average a bit more aware than their fathers. Going back to about the common issues people face, a lot of stress, burnout, mm. uh, imposter syndrome, things like that. Uh, in your experience, right, in talking with patients who are suffering from these uh, mm. conditions, uh, how do they usually deal with it themselves? Some people have come and... Uh, Unfortunately, you know, they've been uh, trying to self-medicate with the wrong things, you know, alcohol, drugs, you know, 
uh, shopping too much, you know, sex, you know. So in a way, you see, um, all these things could be addictive. You know, the brain's looking for a, a hit of a release of dopamine, you know, which is a pleasure chemical. Mm-hmm. You know, they've tried uh, maladaptive ways of coping. Sometimes it may not be maladaptive, but they've just maybe uh, relied, you know, on mm-hmm. say Dr. Google and use <laughs> things that have no real uh, kind of proven uh, benefit. Uh, or even sometimes could be dangerous, you know, with mm. uh, in terms of the side effects not adequately tested. And so they stay up later and later to kind of quotation mark make up for lost time, right. and that that's also feeding a vicious cycle. Then that um, you just can't switch off, and you don't have boundaries between your work life and your personal life, and you're just trying, you know, desperately to make up for for lost time, and you keep working harder and harder. You get less quality sleep. Uh, and therefore go down the rabbit hole. That's me. I stay up late most nights, and most of the time it's simply so I can have some time to myself. Frankly, it's mostly spent playing video games. That can be very, very difficult, admitting that you can't solve um, a mental health problems on, uh, on your own. And, and these are often you know, very, very you know, successful people who've come a very long way. They may have you know, done very well in school, been always top in their class. And then with all the stresses, everyone cracks at some point. Um, when the stresses get too much and uh, you know, the, the responsibilities become so overwhelming, um, that help is needed. And of course, there's no shame in seeking help, but you have to be willing to seek help and you have to be aware where you can seek help. Mental health apps have been a great help providing educational resources and self-help activities like meditation and journaling. Wearables are also starting to play a part, helping to keep track of heart rate and other biomarkers to monitor one's mental health. But the doctors advise that taking the time to check in with yourself regularly is still the simplest, best way. Just slow down, think about, you know, what, you know, what are you taking away from the day if you do it in the evening or what are you planning to do in the day um, if you do that in the morning? Mm. Um, just zooming out a little bit and checking in with yourself. Doing a quick self-check, mm-hmm. I think really, you know, um, whether we notice any changes within ourselves. Mm-hmm. I don't have to do this, I guess, every day, but now and then I think it's good. It's like what doctors do. You go to a doctor <laughs> and they're looking for symptoms. So basically what they're looking for are changes. Changes in the way you think. Other, other thoughts become more morbid, more negative, even mm. suicidal. Uh, changes in the way that your body is, you know, are you having more aches and pains, uh, you know, palpitations? Mm. Is your sleep worse? Are you eating worse? Changes in your behavior, you know, are you right, spending a lot nonstop? Are you <laughs> like, you know, starting to maybe hit the bottle a bit more? Um, changes socially, you know, even changes uh, for people, you know, who have mm. a faith and religion. So any of these changes usually, usually might uh, be an early warning signal. And as has been alluded to our episode, being open and willing to receive help is also important. When you make yourself a bit vulnerable, you invite support. You know, if you're always, if you know, if you put up a front and you you kind of muscle through and you you power on and you know plow on, people don't realize that you might be struggling. So you're actually not getting the support. Um, so what was that movie called? I think Inside Out, that, that Disney movie from a while ago. You know, the the, the hero was was not happiness, was actually sadness, because it you know um, triggered genuine uh, caring responses from people. All of our emotions are not 
they're not necessarily good or bad. They're just like indicators and messaging, right? And if we look at it like that, then we can better, like we, we don't shut off things just cause they don't feel good, but. Yeah, that's I think that's one of the main um, criticisms of the so-called positive psychology movement. Um, that, you know, we only value positive emotions, but of course, you know, sadness serves a purpose or, you know, um, even anger is an important, it's not a nice emotion to have, but it's an important one because it restores justice um, and, um, and so forth. So all our emotions are very important. So the moment we start suppressing them and not accepting them or embracing them, then there's a problem. So that's how we can try to help ourselves. But I also wanted to get the doctor's views on the various kinds of mental well-being help that companies can provide to their employees. As caregivers, they brought up points that not only CEOs need to think about, but governments too. How mature is the company in terms of mental health awareness? Mm. Um, so that's for each company to find out, for the HR leaders to you know, analyze um, you know, what are the HR policies. Um, is well-being part of that? Uh, manage, are managers held accountable for their staff's well-being, for example? Are there, as Dr. Ken said, you know, flexible mental health benefits? Do we have gender fair, uh, you know, benefits like, you know, menstrual off days or uh, unconditional sick leave, all of those things? Companies, you know, can check in at a, at a system level um, and also check in, you know, what's the culture? Is mental health talked about? Do we need more um, senior leaders or the founder to talk about their journey to encourage others to come forward? Because if staff don't hear that from the top, then why would they come forward and seek help, right? Um, and then, of course, you know, giving access to, you know, self-care tools and, and coaching and so forth. Actually, the, the, the biggest um, return on investment we see actually for, for middle managers to, to train middle managers um, about mental health matters, how to spot signs of change and distress and um, how to have a safe and, 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 and caring, compassionate conversation about mental health with their staff. Uh, and then signposting, you know, to the, to the relevant resources. One of the... I guess sad things really is that if you look at our uh, climate for insurance, you know, mm -hmm. so the mental illness isn't exactly very well covered. Yes. So it's so it's, it's it's a bummer. I mean, I think if you have a mental problem, you're gonna mm -hmm. uh, have to end up paying out of pocket quite a bit, which which could deter uh, quite a lot of people. Now, I just saw a patient today, so he was sharing with me. He's, very fortunate to be covered, you know, with uh, mm. a very, I guess, a generous uh, provider because he was sharing with me his uh, therapy sessions, you know, cost in the order of about 6000 a month. I mean, that's one of the concerns, you know, really with the healthcare costs. You know, no one can really afford private therapy. Um, and if you have to go through the hospitals um, uh, here in Singapore, but other countries in the region as well, that's, you know, even that is quite unaffordable. Yeah. And then long waiting times, and then yes. you may not get the sessions you need. You may have to you know, get one session a month, um, max. Also, it's not good enough to just solve problems when they arise. Just like how all Singaporeans very quickly learn about the importance of saving with the uh, POSB bank accounts we receive as kids, mental health education should start early. So schools in particular, you know, education ministries have, you know, really, you know, big responsibility um, to start mental health literacy training really, really in, you know, I guess primary one, <laughs> teaching, you know, emotion regulation, self-care strategies and um, to be nice to each other, <laughs> so to speak, you know. Um, I think that, that and technology comes into that as well because it allows, you know, accessible tools of education. It's really important. 
um, because that way then the next generation is hopefully more aware of when they struggle, they're more confident about seeking help and reaching out and build their resilience proactively. And so, so hopefully that, that's going to be uh, a very optimistic vision of where we're going. Mm-hmm. But, you know, mental health tech companies are in a prime spot to make um, care, counseling, therapy, coaching more affordable and accessible, um, you know, uh, accessing it in more bite-sized sort of ways. It's much, much cheaper than going to Orchard Road um, and seeing an expensive private therapist. With using tech, that's also a way maybe to control the healthcare costs because mm. it's, yeah, at the end we all suffer because the healthcare costs goes up, insurance will go up. <laughs> then at the end, everybody pays more mm. and, and, you know, so it's really uh, quite a big burden, both mm. for, I guess, people as well as society. That said, this isn't entirely in the hands of the powers that be. Much like what Sabrina Oi of Calm Collective Asia said at the end of episode two, there's a lot of personal responsibility when it comes to taking care of one's mental well-being. Even joining a a group, you know, uh, you know, just like a chat group, a support group, Mm. you know, and sometimes just sharing some of your concerns, your story, and sometimes you get actually good advice you know mm. uh, not always but but quite often um then of course you know there are the apps which oliver mentioned and you know there are great resources our uh, national library board actually is fantastic mm. you know That's you right, can yeah. download ebooks audiobooks so i think mm. if somebody uh does a little bit of groundwork um you know they could actually do quite a lot themselves you know they could even um you know, nowadays you can even get an audiobook, you know, for say self-help, you know, uh, you know, a cognitive behavioral therapy, mm. say for anxiety. Of course, if somebody's really not inclined and sometimes people just don't have the inclination energy, um, you know, just the next step maybe um speaking to your um general practitioner, mm. you know, mm. uh, if your company has an EAP, you know, just speaking to the mm. counselor. Um, then, of course, from there, I, I guess the next step up would be um, uh, you making that big move, I suppose, to then maybe um, seek help with the psychologist or with the psychiatrist. Mm. So that would probably be the tip of the kind of iceberg. And here's where we come back to that thing I alluded to at the top of the episode, finding the right mental health professional for yourself. If you don't feel comfortable, if you don't feel there's a fit, there's a match, uh, then I would pull out. Because really, you know, if you're going to be working closely with somebody, mm. that that working relationship is of utmost importance. The therapeutic alliance is, you know, is the bedrock of, of you know, of, of any successful sort of relationship between a client and a therapist or counsellor. You know, ideally, you find someone you, you know, you trust and you feel psychologically safe um, and you feel cared for, uh, and you know you've got to trust your your instincts here as well. But the other thing I, I'd say is really important as well. That's um, decisive for the right fit. Is it depends on both what kind of problem you're having um, and the therapy you're receiving. Mm. So you know there's best evidence based practice out there. So for for certain conditions, uh, you know, say for example, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, Cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure and response prevention are the, the key sort of treatment modalities. And if you're not getting that, um, you perhaps shouldn't be seeing that person, even if you like the person. So in my own practice, I've seen this time and time again that um, clients who struggle for 10, 20 or 30 years uh, with OCD or other pro- chronic problem, mental health problems, 
and they had previous therapists and they were getting on but they were you know plowing on over the years and mm. uh, they liked the therapist and became um, a habit to see that person but they were not actually improving they were still quite unwell so you should do your homework um, you know don't shy away from you know also checking the credentials of your therapist ultimately it comes down to this taking that first step might require a lot of courage but it's one that to use startup and business parlance has incredibly high ROI. Don't be afraid to seek help, I'd say. That's a decision. Yes. And be yes. also proactive about your health and That's right. Health. Yes. I mean, you know, lifestyle is obviously important. Prevention is better than cure. <laughs> and, yes. uh, you know, obviously take time to be balanced, you know, because mm -hmm. obviously we live in a very stressful uh, world and environment. So it's good to. Uh, put a big premium on your well-being, you know, your peace. I mean, if something's robbing your peace, you really should be uh, pretty selfish to try and get it back. <laughs> and so our conversation and the vibe check journey ended on that understated rallying cry. I think it's one of the most important lessons I've picked up from talking to all these founders and experts, because at the end of the day, we all innately know what and how we feel. External expectations and norms influence whether we think it's the quote-unquote correct emotion to feel or not, sometimes causing us to question and deprioritize our own well-being, which is pretty crazy, no pun intended, when you think about it. Governments and organizations need to set better systems and infrastructures in place, but we can always take that first step ourselves. Thank you for joining me on this labor of love. It involved venturing very, very far out of my comfort zone. It was my first time doing a podcast and I had to dig up some old, painful memories and bring them up in a public forum. It was also my first time reaching out to so many people for a single project. And there were many, many more than just the guests that you got to hear from. I'm an introvert, so, you know, this was mildly terrifying. I also had to endure two bouts of flu, one of COVID-19, these past couple of months. So did my wife. That did not help. However, talking to every single person was an absolute joy. Dr. Ken mentioned something about the value of pursuing interests and tasks that aren't quote-unquote productive. Well, while this turned into a work project of sorts, it's not part of my day job. And I felt remarkably alive and fulfilled during every recording session. For now, I hope I can bring myself to take increasingly active steps to protect my peace and to build my mental resilience. Hopefully, this series can encourage more people to treat themselves and others a little bit better, kinder. And if it helps just one person to finally seek the help they've needed for the longest time, or to understand the struggles they've been going through a little bit better, I'll have considered it a success. Vibe Check, Mental Health in the Startup World is a podcast by Tech in Asia. Special thanks to Drs. Ken Ng and Oliver Sunderman for taking the time to speak with me. And while we're at it, a big thanks to all our guests who have featured across this series. If you haven't heard any of the other episodes, I'm not sure why you decided to tune into this one, but make sure to check the rest of the series out anyway. Regardless whether this is your first episode or if you've stuck with us throughout the entire series, thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned as much as I did. For the last time, my name is Winston, and I wish you the very best of health and happiness.